Galatians 5. And the theme of this morning's message is a very simple one. All change. All change. Well, as Christians, we are recipients of the Holy Spirit, who, of course, is the third person of the Godhead, the one sent by the Father and sent by the Son, that through him we may enter into a full and experiential knowledge of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, not something that we simply know in our heads, but that we, we, we receive into our souls, into our hearts, and it actually changes us completely. The salvation and the Christian life which we read of in the Bible actually becomes a living, believing, trusting, breathing reality in the life of a man or woman or a boy or girl when the Holy Spirit lives in and dwells in and moves in and remains in one who once was lost and dead in their sins. Now we concluded last week at verse 18 of Galatians 5 where the Apostle Paul explains that this inner warfare which begins in the life of every Christian once they are saved is a reality for all Christians. This battle that ensues as the Holy Spirit comes in and takes hold of each one of us. The Christian is set free from the dominion and the captivity of sin brought under the control and the influence of God's Spirit. And there is an immediate change and there is an ongoing change in the life of the Christian. Immediately, you are justified before God in Jesus Christ. Immediately, you stand before God in Christ, set free from condemnation, Immediately set free from God's wrath and judgment over you. You are forgiven. You are pardoned. You are cleansed. You're accepted. You're loved. You're adopted. And all because of the abundance of God's grace and the completed work of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the new spiritual standing that you have before God as one who now has become his child. But you also enter this new spiritual condition because of that inner change that is brought about to bear upon you. And it is both immediate and it is also gradual and progressive. You immediately become a Christian. And immediately things do begin to change. But that change goes on and on and continues. And I concluded last week with an illustration of a new teacher who's come into, un, into an unruly classroom. And you and I are that unruly classroom into whom the Holy Spirit has come. A new position of authority which is immediate and which takes control straight away. But it takes time for that influence to get into every part of the classroom but take, take effect it will, and take effect it does. And everything in the classroom begins to change. 
But our old sinful nature can still put up a good fight sometimes. You can find your conscience working overtime as a Christian as you begin to live out this new spirit-empowered life. Because the Christian, God, the Christian life is nothing less than walking with God in union with Christ. Spirit-filled, spirit-led, spirit-transformed, spirit-empowered. And this is the life that Paul is talking about to the Galatian believers and to us. The old you was crucified with Christ. You have been made a new creation. And now you must give yourself to live like the new creature that you are. The Bible teaches us that this is something in which you actively participate. Something to which you actively give yourself. You cannot do it. Unless the Spirit has done and is doing his saving work of grace and renewing you. But he brings you to that place where you can live as the Christian you ought to be. He brings you that enabling and that empowering that you're in need of. That you might live to God's glory. And as I said last time, the work of the Spirit primarily is to cause us to cast ourselves more and more upon the Lord Jesus Christ. We do that at the, at the point of our conversion, but we need to continue to do that continually. To cast ourselves upon Christ, to look to Christ, to model our lives upon Christ. To see him more clearly, to love him more dearly, to follow him more closely. And when we do that, your life in increasing measure will fall in line with the law and the will of God. It's like that great story of the housekeeper who fell in love with and eventually married the master of the house. Some of you have heard this illustration many times. But she married the man who used to be her employer. And many years after married life, clearing out the kitchen one day, she found at the back of a drawer an old list. And it was a long list of duties which the man who now was her husband had given her when he first employed her and took up her post as housekeeper in his home. And as she read down the list, a broad smile came across her face. She'd hated that list. She'd struggled with that list. She'd been burdened by that list. She'd always been unable to complete the list. So why the smile? Why had her finding this list not just awakened all of those old feelings of resentment and struggle? Well, it was because as... She looked down that list. She realized that all of these daily and weekly tasks that she had been set all those years ago, they were all the things that she was now doing so gladly and so faithfully and without a second thought as she cared for the husband and the children 
who now she loved so much. And that in very large part helps to explain our new relationship to law-keeping. We do it now because we are in this loving relationship with God our Father and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's our joy, it's our delight to follow after Him. But we do still and struggle, we do still experience these struggles with the old nature. Still rears its head from time to time, doesn't it? And in case we haven't quite understood, uh, Paul spells a few things out for us now in these verses that we're going to consider as we continue through chapter 5. And I want us to notice three clear, simple things. Here's the first. Paul is saying that in every Christian man and woman or boy and girl, there should be the evidence of a changed heart. The evidence of a changed heart. He's talked about Christians not fulfilling the lust of the flesh, verse 16. And in verse 21, having given this long list of sinful behaviors, Paul then says, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And that sounds really emphatic, doesn't it? But he's already acknowledged in verse 17 that we will find ourselves continuing to struggle with sin. So he says, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, but recognizes that we will struggle with those things. Well, how do we reconcile those two apparent contradictions? They are only apparent. Well, Paul's teaching exactly the same thing that the Apostle John teaches in his first epistle. John says this, If we say we have fellowship with God and walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. If you say, I know God, but you do not keep his commandments, you're a liar. The truth is not in you. But whoever keeps his word... Truly, the love of God is perfected in him. By this, we know that we are in him. He who abides, he who says he abides in him, ought himself also to walk just as he walked, looking to Christ. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. But, John also says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Well, what are the two apostles teaching here? On the one hand, to say so emphatically that we should not sin, but at the same time recognizing that we all do still continue to struggle with sin. With a sinful nature, all of us are born with a sinful nature, we know that. We embrace and pursue certain actions and activities, and we're dominated and controlled by certain emotions and attitude and desires. And Paul summarizes very many of them in verses 19 to 21. Many things over which we lust and desire. 
and that we do not hesitate to fulfill and satisfy in our sin. This is what defines us and shapes us as sinners. And, and Paul just runs through some of the categories of sin that all of us struggle with probably the most in our lives. He talks about sexual sins and immorality from the end of verse 19. And of course, the Bible teaches that the only valid way in which sexual intimacy may be exercised and enjoyed is when one man and one woman are joined together in marriage. And anything which falls outside of that, anything, falls under the heading of sexual immorality. And for the most part in this world, people just follow their desires and lusts and fulfill them. But the Bible says, no, that, that's not the way. He talks about spiritual sins, things like idolatry and sorcery, the worship of false gods, making idols out of created things rather than worshipping the creator. Not giving God the place that he is worthy of in your life. And dabbling with a spirituality which is devoid of God and which is devoid of his truth. He talks about sins which mar relationships with others. How many people do you know in this world and they're struggling to maintain good relationships in the home, at work, amongst friends. As I've grown older, one of the things that I've become most thankful for are the generally stable, peaceful relationships that I've known in family life, in church life, amongst my peers. Even looking back at my school days, relatively speaking, the relationships that I, I've known have been good and peaceful and I've also become more aware of situations where people have grown up amongst attitudes and behaviors and experienced attitudes of heart in people which have only filled their life with strife and conflict and hurt and it leaves them really struggling to be able to trust anybody because they've been let down so many times. So many things that I'm thankful to the Lord that I didn't experience to that degree as I was growing up. All of those kinds of attitudes which just break down relationships over and over again. And then he mentions sins relating to intoxication. The intentional overindulging in alcohol. Now if you don't know what that means... Well, you can't see it just at the moment around Liverpool City Centre, but if you went out around Liverpool City Centre late at night on a Friday, Saturday or Sunday evening, you would know exactly what Paul was talking about. The intentional overindulgence, going out, the sole aim of being so drunk that the following morning you can't remember what you did the night before. And all that goes with that Losing control of your faculties. Entering into this mindless revelry. Which leads into who knows what kind of behavior. A total lack 
of self-control and not being able to behave responsibly. We have an expression. It's the drink talking. And it really is for some people. That person really is senseless. Well, of course, as sinners, even when we were, before we were Christians, we don't all display all of these sins in equal measure. But these are the things that lie at the heart of how we live because these sins overrun the sinful heart. Often they can be overlaid with a thin veneer of decency. But it doesn't require much for the veneer to be taken off or worn away. And then you really see what someone's like underneath. And from that kind of dominion of sin, your heart has been set free in Christ. Your heart's desire now, as one who abides in Christ, is to live set free from sin, isn't it? Isn't that the work that the Spirit has done within you? That you now give yourself to living set free from sin. Not to practice such things. That now is where your heart lies as a Christian man or woman. Even though you do continue to struggle with sin. And even though there might be certain sins that are a particular weakness for you, that you struggle with more. Nevertheless, you know your heart is engaged in this battle against sin. Why? Because God has changed your heart. You read verses like verses 19 to 21. And in the depths of your soul, you know and you agree, this is not how a child of God lives. And you yearn to be rid of those sins which are still clinging to you. Because you are walking in and being led by the Spirit of Christ. This is what Paul and John are writing about. That this great change has overcome you. And even though you do find yourself struggling with sin, you have this deep-seated resentment against it. I have a vivid childhood memory of when, for the very first time on holiday, I was mesmerized by the sights and sounds of an amusement arcade late at night as it was all lit up in the darkness. I remember it really well. We were in Tenby in South Wales. I can remember feeling like I just wanted to jump right in and to be immersed in that whole experience and just spend hours there. Just a young boy. The pull and the attraction of it was so strong. And I could see, and I can remember now, it was full of people who were completely engrossed in the whole thing. It was only my dad who kept me from diving straight in. Not that I had any money to spend in it anyway. And as I grow up, every now and again, if we were on holiday, 
I might go into one of those arcades and just play one or two of the games. But as I grew, the pull and the attraction diminished. And the, the number of times I went in went down. And the number of times I walked straight past went up. And now, well, I couldn't tell you the last time I ever went in and played one of those games. I just have no interest or appetite for such a place. Yet some people seem almost addicted to them. Perhaps they actually are. In some ways, the, the heart of the Christian in its change against sin can be a little bit like that. It used to be so attractive. It used to be so enticing. The pull was irresistible. And in your sin, outside of Christ, you couldn't help yourself. But your heart has changed. Your interest has changed. Your appetite has changed. The things you used to delight in, you just don't have the taste for them anymore. They just don't taste good anymore. In fact, they taste worse and worse. They become more and more repugnant to you as a believer. Because you've been given this new heart. And you're growing and growing in the things of Christ. There are still, still some struggles, maybe. There are many types of sin. And your, your appetite for some sins, perhaps, was stronger for others than it used to be for some. And perhaps those sins for which your appetite used to be particularly strong, you still have some degree of struggle with them, maybe. But even then, you can say this. I know for certain it's not what it used to be. And it's changing because God is changing me and the Holy Spirit continues to change me and mold me and shape me because you're walking in the spirit and he is bringing you closer and closer to Christ and your heart has changed and is changing. And that shows itself secondly in the evidence of a new character. A new heart produces a new character. The thing that's most noticeable here is that given the fact that for the most part, Paul has been urging these Gentile believers against being burdened and shackled to law-keeping which, of course, is mostly about things that you do. When he gives this wonderful overview of what it looks like to walk in the Spirit and to be led by the Spirit, he doesn't do what you might at first expect. He doesn't say, stop doing that, and instead, do this. He doesn't give you a new to-do list. And of course, that wouldn't really be the solution, would it? 
replacing the old list with a new list of things to do wouldn't really hit the mark. Now, it's clear that we ought not to do that, and that there are obviously things that a Christian now should do, but that's not how Paul goes about teaching it. Rather than give us a new list of things to do, instead, he says, consider how you ought to be. And what he paints is a picture of Christian character. Be like this. Because if you can be like this, you'll find you are doing that which is right and good before God. The Holy Spirit produces this new nature within every Christian. There are certain graces which are evidence of his divine work within us. So in terms of sin, Paul says you should, be, you should be doing away with all of these kinds of attitudes and behaviors. And what you should be replacing it with, because it does, you don't just do away with those things and leave a void. They're replaced by that which is imparted to you by the Spirit of God. That fruit, which is the natural culmination and outflowing of the Spirit's work within you. And Paul describes the character of the Christian. Because if you can be this kind of man, if you can be this kind of woman, if you can be this kind of boy and girl in Christ, and you can only be this if you are in Christ and indwelt by his Spirit, but when you are this kind of person, then you will do the kinds of things that a Christian should do. And what Paul describes is a character which matches up really well with what we see lived out, of course, in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a description of the character of Christ that should be seen now in each of us. Because Christ now is your life. And it's his spirit who is leading you and indwelling you. For this fruit to grow within you is for you to become more and more like Christ. Now a few years ago I preached a series called Living a Spirit-Filled Life. And we examined each of these things in turn. So if you want to do that you could go back to that. It's on the website somewhere. You'd find it. But we're going to just look at this all in one go this morning. This is what the Holy Spirit produces in the Christian. And it's a single fruit. It's not lots of different fruits. It's a single fruit because all of these graces comprise one whole Christian man or woman. One whole Christian life looks like this. All of these things. The, the, sin, the sinner is changed and transformed to look like this. Love. The love of God has so enraptured your own soul that you cannot help but love God and love others the way you ought to love them. If you truly have a heart of Christian love, how could you at the same time hate or be the cause of contentions or be jealous or be given to outbursts of wrath or act out of selfish ambitions and so on? How could you behave like that if now 
you have this love within your heart and soul. Joy. You don't seek out the sinful thrills and frivolities of the world. Now, they might temporarily raise your spirit, but you have in Christ and in his salvation a deep, seated, unshakable joy. That's the only joy you need. And because of that, you're at peace. You're at peace with God. He's at peace with you. You found in Christ the real contentment of heart and soul that this world longs for, that they come to places like this for. They don't go out of here with the kind of peace and joy that you've got, you know. Oh, it might raise a few laughs for half an hour. But then they go back out and the world is still the world that they left when they came in through the door. Nothing's changed out there and nothing's changed inside. But that's not how it is for you in Christ. God is no longer angry with you in your sin. You no longer need to be angry with anybody else. And to prove it, you are long-suffering. You're patient. You're not short-tempered. You endure and remain stable during times of trouble. You don't bear grudges with people. Because God has just given you this spirit that can bear with people and circumstances. Kindness. You're thoughtful. You're caring. You put yourself out for the benefit of others and you won't think of anything of it. You see a need and meet it. You see someone hurting and you're moved with compassion towards them because you're kind. Goodness. There is a godly purity and holiness and holiness and truthfulness about you as a Christian. Now, when that's your character, that's got to shape how you behave and live, hasn't it? Faithfulness. You're reliable. You're trustworthy. You're a man or a woman of godly integrity. Gentleness. All the harsh edges have gone, or at least they're well on their way. You're never abrasive. You're never rude. You're never abrupt. You never leave people feeling battered and bruised because you deal with them with tenderness. And you're self-controlled. Interesting, isn't it, the final one? That the Holy Spirit brings to you the ability for you to be able to control yourself. You're disciplined. You're measured. There's nothing chaotic or unruly about you. The Christian life should not be chaotic and unruly. You never lose your temper. You never speak out of turn. You've learned how to tame your tongue. To be long-suffering and faithful requires a good deal of self-control. God has it covered, and that's all part of the fruit of his spirit too. This glorious character that comes to the Christian. God pours out his grace into this once sinful life. And it's like a seed planted in the ground. And up comes this shoot of new life within you. And it grows 
and it grows and it grows and it bears more and more fruit. And at the heart of it all is a Christ-like heart which emanates from this Christ-like character which touches the lives of all the other people that it meets. And then finally, we have the evidence of a new will, a new heart, a new nature, a new will. The fruit of the Spirit is something that the Spirit makes you to be. But he also puts within you the desire and the will to do it. In chapter 2, Paul says that we've been crucified with Christ. Now, he says that there primarily with regard to our justification, that which actually makes us to be right with God, that which makes us to be saved at all, is that we have been crucified with Christ. Christ died the death that we should die, and we died there with him on the cross. And it was all his doing. Here in chapter 5, Paul says that there is a crucifying of the flesh which you must do, verse 24. A crucifying of the flesh to which you must give yourself, doing away with indulging those sinful desires and lusts. And you've no excuse for not doing it, because all the graces that you need, the Holy Spirit has given you. Some might say, I don't have the motivation. Well, do you truly love Christ? Because if you do, that will be motivation enough. Some might say, I don't have the will. I don't have the willpower or the discipline. Well, you do if you exercise the faithfulness and the self-control that the Spirit has given you. Some might say, I don't see the point. Well, you cannot fail to see the point of crucifying the flesh if the Spirit is bringing forth goodness in your life. Some might say, doesn't this all somehow just happen to me? Why do I need to engage in this? Well, Paul says, let us, and let us not, in verses 25 and 26, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. There are things in which you and I are to be actively engaged. Let us, let us not. And so you make decisions and choices as a Christian I will, and it's this. I will not, and it's that, because you're a Christian man or woman. I will do this. I will be this. I will put that away. I'll make that thing cease in my life. Because I have this new heart, and I am being changed. And this character of Christ-likeness is gripping me and taking hold of me. And the will to want to do it comes because you live in the Spirit. The means to do it comes because you live in the Spirit of God. The will to do it is to be like Christ and comes from Christ. The means to do it 
is because it is Christ's life in you by his spirit. How is it that others may know that you are a Christian? How is it that you may be assured that you are a Christian? It's because Christ comes to you in the person and the power of his spirit. And when he does that, these three things will always be clearly seen. It cannot be any other way because this is what the spirit does. He will put in you and give you the evidence of a changed heart. The evidence of a new character. And the evidence of a new will. This is God's work within each one of us. May we be so to the glory and praise of his name.